story of David and Goliath is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Really one of the most well-known stories of stories all time, period. People know this story if they don't know any other stories in Scripture. Especially right now, as we're in VBS season, the story of David and Goliath will be told to some in hallways and churches. For the very first time, some will hear it, and others who've been telling it for a long time will probably tell it for the hundredth time. This story of the shepherd boy who beats the Philistine giant in battle. You know, even people that don't know the Bible, even people that couldn't find 1 Samuel in the Bible if their life depended on it, they know the story of David and Goliath. And sometimes it's been hijacked to be a story really about the underdog and how he's successful, though that's a part of the story. That's not all of it. If you watch a sporting event or a competition where the underdog overcomes and beats an overwhelming favorite, it's sometimes described as the David and Goliath phenomena. It's just a story that we know well. But what you find in 1 Samuel 17 is not just David winning a battle by luck or by chance or by his own military prowess. What you find is David succeeding on behalf of all of Israel and embedded in 1 Samuel 17 is really the blueprint by which we win every battle that we fight, everything that we find ourselves up against. What we find as far as success in 1 Samuel 17 is what God wants his people to practice wherever we find ourselves and at any time. You know, it's a familiar story, but that which is familiar needs to be read more closely. We need to allow ourselves to be immersed in the narrative again and to be shaped and changed by what we read on its pages. Of course, you know the story. As Josh was reading for us just a moment ago, 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning at verse 1, there are two armies. There's the Philistines, and they're in the valley of Soko, and then there's Israel's army, and they're in camp with King Saul. In verse 3, they're just waiting. Nobody's done anything. They're waiting on the first army to make a move. And it's at this point that a Philistine champion from Gath named Goliath comes out, and he challenges Israel. And in the longest description of any human being in the Old Testament, Goliath is described by the Holy Spirit in vivid detail. His javelin, his sword, his armor. In fact, he has a shield bearer that goes out before him, and he wants to engage in what's called one-man combat, where instead of all of the armies engaging in the battle, one person from one side fights and another from another side, and if that person wins, his whole army wins, and if that individual loses, his whole army loses. In verse 10, he says, you choose a man, give me a man that might fight me this day. And of course, all of Israel is terrified and afraid. You would think if you've been reading through 1 Samuel, the obvious champion to rise to the surface would be King Saul. He's been described previously as being head and shoulders above all Israel. And besides that, he's the king. And King Saul's a no-show. In fact, all of Israel is a no-show. David's on an errand from his dad, Jesse, to go check on his brothers. And he hears the taunts and the threats from the Philistine giant. And he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? What will be given to the man that slays him? And they relay the information. They say he'll have a wife. He'll be rich and his family will be freed from taxes. That's reason enough to fight. <laughs> David says, I'll fight him. And though Israel, his older brother Eliab, and even Saul himself says, you know, you can't fight him. You're unskilled. You're unprepared. You don't have the right armor. David decides to go anyway. Saul says, well, if you're going to go and fight him, you should probably take some of my armor. David refuses. He takes what he knows. A stone, a slingshot, and his strong confidence in God. He stands before the giant, and the giant mocks him and says, I'm going to feed your flesh to the birds this day. David says, you come with sword and spear. 
But I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, the armies of Israel, whom you've defied this very day. He strikes the giant in the head with the stone, cuts off his thinking cap with his own sword. And then the, the fear that was Israel's is transferred to the Philistines. And as a result of that, Israel routes them and eventually plunders their camp. It's at this point that those of you that have heard this story dozens and dozens of times must fight the temptation to say, you know what, that's a cute story. And it's great. The underdog wins. And there's some good moral lessons about how we can overcome and say to ourselves instead, what is God trying to teach us about how we win battles as his people? Maybe the giants you're facing aren't nine feet tall like Goliath was, but that doesn't stop them from being any less real, whether it's depression or anxiety, or failure, or procrastination, or temptation, or loneliness, or anger, or resentment. We all have giants, and we'll have them. And what are we going to do when those giants come? In 1 Samuel 17, what we find is David was successful not because he was talented, or smart, or gifted, but because he relied on the Lord. And there are six principles that run through this text that when we adopt them, we'll be successful in battle no matter what. Here they are, number one. Be bold and unafraid. You know, the text says, if you look at 1 Samuel 17 and verse 11, that the people in Israel were very afraid. And every day when Goliath would come out, verse 24 says Israel would flee away in fear. You think about Goliath and the way he's described as being nine feet tall and all of the armor. And it's impressive that nowhere in the Bible does it say anything about David's height, but it says an awful lot about his heart. First Samuel 16 and verse seven. God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And while all of Israel was timid and hiding and afraid, David is not. David is willing to go and engage the giant in battle. The worst thing that happened to Goliath was not a stone in his forehead or a sword on his throat. The worst thing that happened to him was a servant of God heard his taunting and was convicted and unafraid. Just notice how the narrator does this at the end of verse 23. He's coming out day by day. And the last part of verse 23 says, and David heard him. And from that moment forward, Goliath's days were numbered because David was both bold and unafraid, courageous and not timid like the others. All of Israel's in the camp worried about what Goliath might do. And David is courageous and he knows what God will do. And so he's unafraid. You know, throughout the book of Psalms, one of David's favorite words and really that of the psalmist is do not be afraid. Just notice how many times this appears in the psalm. Psalm 23 and verse four. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, the psalmist says. Or Psalm 46 and verse two. Therefore, we will not fear. Over and over again, the psalmist drops on this point. Do not be afraid. Psalm 49 and verse five. I will not be afraid in times of trouble. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. Psalm 56 and verse three. I won't be afraid to speak of your words before kings. Psalm 119 and verse 46. A key word throughout the book of Psalms for David is fear. And he always ties a knot in front of it. He refuses to be afraid. It doesn't mean that there aren't any challenges or any difficulties, but David has just vowed in his heart. Nothing that the opposition does is going to cause him to shake in his boots. Now, here's the question. When you read these references from the Psalms and he says, I won't be afraid, I won't be afraid. They sound like declarations. And so the question is, who is David talking to? Who is David telling? I will not fear. I will not be afraid. My heart is firmly fixed on him. I won't fear. Psalm 112 and verse seven. The obvious answer is the audience that would later read his words. But it's more than that. David's also talking to himself. 
Because we often need to remind our own hearts and knocking knees that our God hung the stars like we hang a shirt in the closet and we've got nothing to fear. Hebrews 13 and verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I won't fear. What can man do to me if we're going to overcome the giants that come up in all of our lives? We've got to start here. This is the first domino that fell for David that led to everything else you read in 1 Samuel 17. He just refused to be afraid. He's in a long line of people in the Bible that had this same heart and the same spirit. Just think about Esther. Esther chapter 4, she's told if she goes in, she could die before the king. What does Esther say in chapter 4 and verse 16? If I perish, I perish. That is, I'm bold and convicted and unafraid. It's the beaten and yet bold apostles of Acts chapter 5 and verse 29. Don't preach in his name anymore. Don't say anything else about Jesus. We ought to obey God rather than men. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stubbornly and defiantly say, we won't bow even if you burn us alive, Daniel 3, 17 through 19. It's the unknown and the unnamed saints of Revelation 12 and verse 11 who overcame the dragon and Satan by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony. And because they love not their lives unto death, they just refuse to be afraid. There's a thread of irony that runs in this passage that shows you why David was so loved and so favored. You remember when Israel was supposed to go into the land of Canaan and conquer the land. Numbers 13, they send the 12 spies. Numbers 13, verse 32 and verse 33 says 10 of the spies come back and they say, you know what? I don't think we can do it because there are giants in the land. And those giants are from the people of the Anakim. And they say we can't go and win. David hears about Goliath, 1 Samuel 17 and verse 16. They went into the land for 40 days. They come back. They say, we can't do it. Goliath's been coming out for 40 days, 1 Samuel 17 and verse 16. And David says, there's a new Israel now. We're not like those fearful spies that don't think they can win and overcome battles. David says, I'll fight the giant. And he would. And he did. The giants that you face in life and that I face in life will only be defeated and overcome if we adopt this spirit of boldness and courage and conviction. Our world's given us so much to be afraid of. I think that's the overarching message of our world right now. Be afraid of what you eat and of what you wear and of where you live and of the environment imploding ever about you. All of the signals from the world are you should be deathly afraid about everything. And the message from Scripture over and over again is if you're the child of God, there's nothing that this world can do to you that should ever cause you to fear. And so Jesus says in Matthew 10 and verse 31, do not fear. Your very hairs are all numbered. Don't be afraid. It's me, Matthew 14 and verse 27, and you're with me. And therefore, you've got nothing to worry about. You want to slay life's giants, whatever the giants are for you, just make up your mind. I'm going to be bold and I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be intimidated by what the world throws at me. Maybe you've said this to people before and you've heard it said before. Somebody's afraid of dogs. They come to your house and you have dogs and they're jumping and climbing all over the furniture. And you say something along these lines. You probably shouldn't do that because dogs smell what? Dogs smell fear. They don't really smell fear, though. I mean, they've got a good, keen sense of smell, but they can't actually smell fear. But giants do. The devil knows if he keeps us fearful, he'll keep us frozen. Spending all of our lives worried about all of the bad things that might happen stop us from doing all of the good things that should happen. In trying times, remember to try. Give it your all. Don't be afraid. Trust in the Lord. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6, God told Moses, don't be afraid. You read 1 Samuel 17, and if you've never read it before, you've got to be thinking David could die in battle, and he could, but he also could live, and he did. As you face giants, remember to be bold. And refuse to be afraid, not because there aren't any real threats that exist, 
but because there's a God who's unintimidated. Say what David says in verse 32. Let no man's heart fail because of him. He doesn't just speak for himself. David says none of us have anything to fear. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will fight the giant. Giants show up in your life. Say those four four words. That's where you start before you ever lift a finger. I will fight him. I won't hide. I won't be afraid. I'm up for the task. Here's number two. Ignore the naysayers. It wasn't just that David had to be bold and courageous, and he did, but he also had to silence the people that thought that he shouldn't go in battle. In verse 25, the Israelites say, do you see this man that's come up talking about the massive man that Goliath was? And then his brother Eliab later on in verse 28 says, you probably should scram and go and take care of our father's sheep. You've got no business in this battle. After he says he'll fight in verse 32, Saul says, notice the text, you can't fight this Philistine. You're just a youth, and he's been fighting men from his youth. You're no match. And David ignores all of them and says, I'm going in battle anyway. If we would be successful in our fight against the giants that try to well up in our lives, we've got to ignore the naysayers. One of the keys really to success in life is this principle, learning whose voice to turn the volume up on and whose voices we really need to turn the volume down on because they discourage us and defeat us. Later, David's going to say in Psalm 3, oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many of those that rise up against me. Many say there's no salvation for him in God. But you, oh, Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. Psalm 3, verses 1 through 3. David knew it didn't matter what they said. It's who God is. Just because they say they can't doesn't say anything about what you can do. And we've got to learn how to overcome the naysayers that will up in our lives. They might say, well, I've given in to that temptation and I don't know how you could overcome it. I don't think your marriage can survive that most recent blow without crumbling. You ought to just throw in the towel. They might say, well, all of the research and all the evidence says this is a lost cause. You know, we did that before. We tried that once and we really weren't successful. I mean, you can give it your best shot, but you probably won't succeed. You probably won't make it. And on and on the negativity goes. And we're desperately wanting other people to sign off on us and approve our plans, our goals, our ambitions. And what if heavenly approval is enough? What if what God says about us is far more important than what man thinks about us? And so 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 5, Paul would say, our sufficiency is not from ourselves, but it's from God. And he's made us able ministers of the New Testament. Jeremiah's question, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? And though we know the answer, sometimes we behave as if we don't. David says, I don't care what you all say. I'll fight the giant. I believe we can do it. No matter what anybody else says, I'm going to go and engage. There have always been people that would discourage the people of God from doing the things that God would have them to do. Nehemiah says, we're going to build a wall. They said, that wall is so flimsy that if a fox goes up that wall, it'll come down the same night. Nehemiah 4 and verse 3, three verses later, Nehemiah says, we built the wall. It was joined to the half thereof because the people had a mind to work. Joseph told his brothers his dreams, Genesis 37 and verse 8, and they mocked him. And yet those dreams became a reality. They did come to Egypt and they did bow, Genesis 45 and verse 5. Assyria said to Hezekiah and company, you all in Judah will fall just like every other nation. Isaiah 37 and verse 12. God says they won't shoot an arrow in your gates. And they didn't. Isaiah 37, 33 through 35. Instead of listening to the world and all of their advertisement about what can't be done, let's listen to God and what he says can be done. This doesn't mean in your life and my life we should surround ourselves with yes men and women that always tell us things are going to go well and go according to plan. We need good intellectual sparring partners that say to us, hey, you probably should rethink that. 
And hey, have you really thought this through and make sure that you count the cost? But we do need to mute and turn the volume all the way down on people who never see the bright side, who tell us we can't soar as spiritually high as God would have us to or to engage in serving God in new and fresh ways like we never had before. Those people are naysayers that must be rejected. Proverbs 29 in verse 25 says the word of man lays a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. And that's what David does. He puts all of his eggs in that basket and it keeps him from being intimidated. Winston Churchill gave the commencement address at his alma mater at Harold School in 1941. The legend has it that Churchill got up in top hat cigar in his mouth, as he always does. He got behind the pulpit and this was the content of his speech. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never to anything small or great, petty or large. Never give in to anything except convictions of good courage and good sense. He walked away from the mic and he sat down. The reality is there might have been more in his speech than that, but that's what they remembered. Because we always remember the people that tell us that we can rather than the people that tell us we should never get started. You can be strong and do it. Ezra 10 and verse 4. And before David ever threw a stone, he had to reject the people that said he couldn't. Aren't you glad that David didn't listen to the naysayers? Aren't you glad that he went and fought the giant anyway? And your future self will be glad that you didn't listen to the naysayers either. You'll be glad that you engaged in the battle against your giants and you didn't just lay down and die and give up, but instead that you fought. Here's number three. Remember past victories. Saul says, you can't fight him, David. He's been a Valiant warrior from his youth and your buddy youth. Notice the text. Look at first Samuel 17 and notice how David carefully reasons in verse 34 and 36. In this passage, we've got a story from David that we don't have any biblical account of. This is just out of the autobiographical files of David. And he tells us what's taking place. He says, well, Saul, I know I can win this fight. I know I can. By the way, he's never fought a giant before. He doesn't have any history with that. But this is what he says in verse 34. I kept my father's sheep and on occasion. A lion or a bear would come in among my father's sheep and take one away. And he says, I grab him by the beard in verse 35 and slay him and kill him. And then in verse 36, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like them. The God who helped me in that occasion will help me in this one. Do you notice how David reasons about the giant in his life? He doesn't have any history with this giant. This is a new battle, a new fight. But David says, listen, I know I can win because of what God's done before. Hold your hand in 1 Samuel 17 and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a biblical concept that to overcome and be successful, you've got to remember past victories. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul's at one of the lowest points in his life. The Paul that was shipwrecked and overcame so much, the bold Paul of the book of Acts, gives us some autobiographical information about his life in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And notice what he says in verse 8. He says that he and his companions were once in Asia, pressed beyond their ability. So much so that they despaired of life itself. He says we were given over to the sentence of death that we shouldn't trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And now catch this last part in verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death or deadly pearl, who does deliver. And we've set our hope on him that he will yet deliver us again. Paul, how do you know that you're going to come out of this? Because God and I have history. Most times when preachers get up to preach and I'm always thankful for this, somebody stands up and says, we pray that he'll have a ready what? A ready recollection. What does that mean? It means it sounds like a disease. It's not. They're praying, hey, I hope you remember everything you've studied. Because if you don't, it would all be for naught. Before you get up to preach, somebody prays, I hope you remember everything just the way you intended to remember it. According to David in 1 Samuel 17, every one of us needs a ready recollection. 
if we don't have this. God will have to audition for our trust every time we face a new giant. And that's not the way this is designed to work. David's never fought a giant before, but David has a lion and a bear file. And this is how his life works. It's a simple three step method. Same God, different foe, same result. So when Saul says, hey, you can't beat this giant, David says, wait a minute. Same God, different foe, same result. It's going to happen the same way it did last time in every one of us. Everything God's ever brought you through in life and me, the way God set it up is you and I should have a mental file, a bear and a lion file in our mind so that when we face new giants, whether they be financial or relational or whatever, same three step method, same God, different foe, same result. That's what David does. He says, I know we can overcome. I know I can beat the giant because God's helped me before. It's at this point in the sermon that we normally could cite some references about what God's done in the past and that God doesn't change. Malachi three and verse six. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. And we probably could talk about some of the ways God delivered people in the past. And that would be helpful. But that's not what I mean at all with this point. I mean, you personally have your own lion and bear stories. You do. And there are people sitting on the pew next to you. If you're sitting around family, they know your lion and bear stories. They know them. They know what you've been through. But then there's another level to this where you have certain things you've overcome with the help of God that nobody in the world knows about. But you know that you know that, you know, you wouldn't have made it out any other way. And sometimes when we face giants, we don't have the ready recollection. And all of God's deliverance in our lives ends up being for naught because we say, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to do the same thing we did last time. We're going to trust the same God who's always brought us through. And that's exactly what David does. You go to stadiums, high school, college or wherever. They normally have these banners hanging in the rafters and those banners will have different things. This was the undefeated season. This is the year this team won the championship or whatever. And it's designed to say to the players on the team, to the fans and to the opponents, you're dealing with winners. And this team, this organization has a history of winning. And look at all that we've done. Some teams really haven't won a lot. And so you might go into their stadium, nothing hanging in the rafters at all. In every human heart, there's something hanging in the rafters. And God wants you to be able to pull it up when difficult times come and say, he delivered me from the lion and from the bear. And he'll deliver me from this situation as well. Maybe not exactly how we want or the way we planned it. But trust in God mandates that we remember past victories and where he's brought us from. Look at Romans chapter eight. Go to Romans chapter eight and notice Paul does this very same thing. Christians should reason from the cross backwards. Our thinking should be the cross is where God proves his love initially, but that's not where it ends. Romans eight thirty one. Paul says, if God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up freely for us all. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? That's the first domino. Paul says God gave us Jesus. Now look at verse 38 and verse 39. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels or principality. How does Paul know all of that's true? Because he's got 31 and 32 in his back pocket. He knows that the death of Jesus Christ is the signpost and the gateway into which God's going to give us everything else. And so there's nothing to fear or worry about. Got giants in life. Somebody says, yeah, Hiram, but these are new giants. I've never faced these giants before. This is a different season of life with different things. That's really not the point. All giants are the same size to God. Goliath was a giant. David never fought this one before. He's fought lions and bears, but it wasn't about that. David had the same God he had always fought with. And so he knew this time will be like those times. I know God will bring me through and he'll deliver me because that's what he does. Here's number four. How to overcome life's giants, trust in the armor that God provides. Saul says, "Okay, David, if you're going to go in battle, you should at least wear the armor. 
You know, people say maybe Saul wanted David to wear the armor that just in in the event that David were to win, Saul would get some credit. Maybe that's the case. And sometimes people read into the text what's really not in the Bible. People say things like, well, hey, Saul was head and shoulders above everybody. David put on the armor and he couldn't go because it didn't fit him. It was too big. It's sort of like Shaquille O'Neal offering one of his shoes to a child in cradle roll. It just didn't fit. The Bible doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible says in verse 39, David put them on. He could fit them. He tried to go, but he says, I can't wear these because I haven't tested them or proved them. He never trained in these before. David was a large man, probably in a similar comparison in size to Saul. But he says, I can't fight in this stuff because I've never used it before in battle. These aren't the things that I use. And so he took what he always used. And it's not his slingshot or his stones. It's his strong confidence in God. Psalm 112 and verse seven says he won't be afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. And that's what David does here. I don't think God would have been upset with David if he would have gone into battle with Saul's armor, really. But throughout the Bible, what we find is God is desperately hungry for his own glory and he doesn't want to split it with anybody. God would prefer to have all of the odds stacked against him. He'd prefer for his people to be so far backed into a corner that when they win and when they're successful, There won't be any doubt about why they were. And so Judges chapter seven and verse two, he says, Gideon, you've got to whittle this army. I mean, way down so that when we win and we will, you'll know it was because of me. You've got to trust in the armor that God provides. And I think when we face some giants and difficulties in life, we're tempted here because we think to ourselves, you know, the Christian life, it only takes you so far. I mean, Christian stuff and the Christian graces and the fruit of the spirit, that's helpful in the spiritual realm. But every now and again, you've got to get down on the devil's level. You know what I mean? Every now and again, you've got to shed this Christianity and this nice guy attitude and just being kind and gracious to everybody. And if you really want to get ahead in the devil's world every now and again, you've got to use worldly tactics. And David says, go with what you know. The armor that God gives, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, it covers you spiritually from head to toe. The fruit of the spirit is always the right way to respond to everything in life. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The Christian graces of 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11 will see us through no matter what. And so David says, I'm going to go in the armor that I know. I'm going to fight this battle with what I know will help me to win. And that's trusting in the armor that God provides. Trusting that what God uses is going to be to our great success because the one who's in us is greater than he that's in the world. First John 4 and verse 4. Never doubt him. Never think that we're smart enough to do it on our own and without God and we'll be successful using some other means. The contrast is impressive. I told you at the beginning of the lesson, 1 Samuel 17, 4 through 7 is the longest description of anybody in the Bible. I mean, you've got one liners where it says this person was handsome or she was beautiful, but the Holy Spirit doubles down and allows his pen to bleed over talking about all that was Goliath's. And the point is, when you get to verse 51 down through 54 and he dies. The point is to say all of the armor, all of the shields and all of the gold in the world couldn't help him. And when you read about David's little one line artillery, none of that could stop him from being successful. Every other army in the world based their success on military might, strategy, the chariots. But, you know, Psalm 20 and verse seven, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. What matters to us most in battle? is whether or not we trust in the armor that God provides. Here's number five. Fight in the name of the Lord. 
David says, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the the armies of Israel whom you've defied this day. Several times in 1 Samuel, David says, you're this uncircumcised Philistine. That's just another way of saying this. Goliath's not in the family of God. He can't come in the name of the Lord. He's not cut properly. He's not in our family. But we're God's people. And so if this uncircumcised Philistine defies the armies of the living God, he'll be destroyed and he'll lose. Because we're fighting with God. There's been a recent influx of self-help books, things that will help you to be successful. And this is just a sampling of some of them. But there are others. Atomic Habits, 48 Laws of Power. Maybe you've read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Hollis has a book, Girl, Wash Your Face. And I think girls should wash their face. But her book is really about how to overcome. And all of these books, they've got one thread in common in all of them. Peterson's 12 Rules of Life, all of these books, they say the same thing in different ways. I've read some of them. They're not bad, but they just say, listen, you can succeed in life, whatever the endeavor, if you work really hard. If you get up early in the morning, if you're industrious, if you outperform the other guy, if you engage in battle in that way, you'll prosper in life, in business and whatever you engage in. And that's true to a certain extent. But Christians know that'll only take you so far. Human energy and ingenuity and human wisdom will only get you so far in the end. You'll be tapped out. I think one of our greatest failings sometimes as people of God, and I've tried to be especially vague this morning on purpose and not name specific giants, because I think what we do sometimes is we say, OK, God's for me in spiritual things. My God will help me in spiritual endeavors. But then there's this other stuff over here. And if it's not exactly under the spiritual umbrella, then I'm all on my own. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says God's the God of our life. Psalm 42 and verse eight. He's engaged in every part of our life. You name the giant and God's interested in your success over it. And so we ought to fight every battle in the name of the Lord. That means more than just giving lip service to I'm on God's side. It means my whole lot is thrown in who God is. I'm fighting by his power, his authority, and I'm trusting him to see me through. That's exactly what David does. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. Second Chronicles 32 and verse eight says with them is the arm of flesh, but with us is the name of the Lord. Whatever we face in life, we should go in God's strength and power. What does Paul say? Colossians 3:17. whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. First Corinthians 10 and verse 31. Fight your battles in life. Fight your giants in the name of almighty God. That's what David's banking his whole success on. He says, I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. Listen, everybody in the world fights battles in one of two names, either in their own name or in the name of God. Israel was so impressed with Goliath that they didn't think they stood a chance. And David was so impressed with God that he knew Goliath never did. And when you and I face hardships, it really boils down to who impresses us more. Our problems, man, this is a long list of issues. This is a long list of adversity or our God who's never met a difficulty that he couldn't overcome. The one that impresses us tells us everything we need to know about whether or not we're going to be successful or whether or not we'll ultimately be defeated. And here's the sixth and final one. If we're going to slay life's giants, defeat the giants of our lives, we've got to disarm the enemy and empower others. David throws the rock and it hits the giant in his forehead and then he takes his sword and he finishes Goliath off himself. But that's not the end of it. After David does that, The once formerly fearful Israelites hiding in their tents, they gain new courage and they get up and they rout the Philistines. It's the one man combat. David was not just fighting for Israel. He was fighting as Israel. That means when he won, they won. It was immediate. As soon as he was defeated, Goliath, 
all of the Philistines were as well. Verse 52 through 54 says all of the Israelites, they run and they chase the Philistines out of town. They're fearful. They're terrified. And Israel wins as a result. Overcoming life's giants isn't just about you getting out of difficult situations, whether it's relational or financial or spiritual or emotional. When you overcome, your job's not done. You haven't really defeated life's giants until you empower other people and strip the enemy of his power. How does that work? It works this way. When you see other people in similar circumstances, as loud as you can, you should be saying, I know that looks like a big giant, but we've been there before. We've overcome him. You can, too. Come in here, all of you who fear God, and I'll show you what great things he's done for my soul. Psalm 66 and verse 16. The demon possessed man wants to follow Jesus after he's healed him in the area of the Gadarenes. Jesus says you can't, but you can do this. Mark 5, 19. Go home and tell all of your friends and loved ones the great things God has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. You see, if we overcome our own little obstacles and we all keep our own little secrets in our family or in our own little cubby holes, we haven't done it right. To overcome and defeat life's giants means as soon as we overcome, we're to take the same comfort that God lavishes on us and announce it to the world. The world's giants are not as strong as they appear. We haven't overcome because we have a special hat or a unique sense of spirituality, but because we serve the true and the living God. And what David does is he says it's over for Goliath, but it's over for all of the Philistines. In Israel, there's nothing to be afraid of. In fact, there never was. You can win. You can be successful. Do you know how many people need to hear that? Do you know how many things you've overcome that people are dealing with right now that they think they should just throw in the towel on life itself? And you've been there. You've said to yourself, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. And yet you have. But it's not supposed to be your little secret with God or my little secret with God. We're supposed to disarm the enemy and then empower other people. When this is over, Saul says something shocking. He says, Whose son is this? And if you've been reading First Samuel, it sort of doesn't make sense because David's already been serving in his court. It's not that he doesn't know David. He says, whose son is this? Because he's supposed to go to Jesse and make sure Jesse and the rest of the family never pay taxes again. Everything's set. And from this point forward, First Samuel shows David as the true king of Israel who's going to lead them to victory. But it would be wrong to end the sermon right here just talking about David and our trials and our giants instead of pointing toward the true David, the son of God who came among us and heard the taunts of sin and death, who has slain every enemy who had ever rose up against him before and who chose to engage in battle on our part. He shows up to the battle and death thinks just like it always has, he'll be slain like the rest. He comes with no sword, no spear, in fact, no weapons at all. The only weapon in his power that he uses is surrender. And he dies and he rises triumphantly on the third day. Jesus goes into battle, not simply for us, but as us. His victory becomes our victory. You read First Samuel and you get afraid and you say, David went into battle at the risk of his life. Jesus went into battle at the cost of his life. He knew it would cost him everything and he didn't flinch. He went in anyway. And when he walked out of an open, open tomb, he holds the door open for all of us. And one day, because that domino fell, every one of us. We'll come marching out of the grave, too. He really did disarm the enemy and empower us, those who were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. And it's based on that principle, because that giant failed all of the others in our life, whether in this life or in the world to come, they'll fall, too. We're going to sing a song to encourage us. And maybe you need to respond to the invitation. Maybe you're fearful and in life's tent, afraid of all the things that might go wrong, afraid of difficulty and hardship, or maybe just shackled by sin and the Bible would say, 
He's a wounded enemy and defeated. God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Romans 16 and verse 20. You can obey the gospel and share the victory that Jesus has already won because he didn't just perform for us. He performed as us, meaning every good deed he ever did. When we stand before God justified, is transferred to us. And God sees you and me as if we live that same perfectly sinless life and we're justified. We're going to be letting the song to encourage us. If you need to respond, if we can help you, come now as together we stand and as we sing.